Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Secularism is an increasingly hot topic in public, political, and religious debates across the globe. We can see these debates play out in a variety of ways, such as in the challenges the secular republics like the U.S. and India face from resurgent religious identity politics, or in the challenges the religious states like those of the Arab world face from insurgent secularists. And also, in states like China, where calls for freedom of belief are challenging a state-imposed non-religious worldview. In his new book, Secularism, Politics, Religion, and Freedom, Andrew Copson tells the story of secularism, taking in momentous episodes in world history, such as the great transition of Europe from religious orthodoxy to pluralism, the global struggle for human rights and democracy, and the origins of modernity. Copson is a chief executive of Humanists UK and president of the International Humanist and Ethical Union. His writing on humanist and secularist issues has appeared in The Guardian, The Independent, The Times, and New Statesman, as well as in various other journals. He has represented the humanist movement extensively in British national news, including on the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, and Sky. He joins me today to discuss his excellent new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Secularism. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Andrew Copson to talk about his book, Secularism, Politics, Religion, and Freedom. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up taking on such an active role in your field. Well, um, I've always uh, had uh, non-religious beliefs, a little bit unusually perhaps. I had non-religious parents, non-religious uh, grandparents and great-grandparents. And so um, there was never any uh, sort of religion in my life. And um, I got involved quite early with humanist organizations in the UK. So the British Humanist Association, as it was then called, uh, was campaigning while, while I was an undergraduate against growth, the growth of state funded public schools that uh, were controlled by religious groups. And I got involved uh, in that organization first because of that. And then later on, uh, when I entered the world of work, um, there were jobs uh, in humanist organizations that I applied for and got. Um, and along the along the way, um, I maintained uh, an academic interest in uh, matters related to humanism and to secularism. It's 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 quite uh, a privilege actually to be able to work for uh, an organization like Humanist UK um, because one of the things it gives you time to do is to rise and to think and to maintain academic interests as well as the uh, the policy uh, and other work. Um, that you're involved in. And so uh, they've been very good to me and I've been able to keep up writing and, and conferences uh, on, on, on the side. Fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book in particular? Well, the book was commissioned uh, originally in the Oxford University Press very short introduction series, which um, you might be familiar with. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of little books. Um, I think almost 500 now, maybe more than that. Uh, which are very short introductions to specific topics. Um, and so I was commissioned to write the volume in that series on secularism. On it, they said uh, that actually they like to bring it out as a, a standalone hardback um, in the US and the UK, at least, 
um, before it went into the very short introduction series in a couple of years' time. So I thought that was a, a very good idea, and I said yes to it. Um, so it was the book came about um, as a very something designed to be very informative, so not not really argumentative, um, but a, a summary of the state of the field, really, uh, where we are with secularism today, what it is, where it came from, uh, the arguments for it, the arguments against it, and that's the type of book it is. Some people have uh, criticised already for 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 not being um, argumentative enough, one way or the other, uh, or for being being too fair-minded uh, one way or another, but that really is because it's intended to be a very short introduction to secularism. And the reason I think why that's important at, at this time is because secularism, like many other concepts of liberal democracy, like the rule of law, like human rights, like checks and balances, like a lot of other political concepts that many of us value, is under threat in today's world. We'll probably talk a little bit more about the, the, the forces yeah. that threaten it. Unlike those other concepts like democracy, either rule of law, it isn't talked about as much. It isn't right. understood as widely. It isn't as widely recognized as being fundamental to uh, modern liberal democracy as those other concepts. And so I thought that really uh, what we needed to have better conversations about secularism and to be better informed about what's happening in the world today with it was, was the sort of book that would just explain what it is, where it came from uh, and where it might be going. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense. So you begin the book by defining your terms, which also makes sense with that objective. Um, you look at the history of how the word secularism has been used and to what extent the concept has appeared in politics and governance in the past. So can you tell us a little bit about that? The word secularism was coined in England by George Jacob Holyoke in the mid-19th century, and he meant it to apply to the separation of religion really from anything, from philosophy, from morals, from personal life, from conscience, and, and so on. Now, in UK English, uh, at least today, we use other words to cover the majority of what Holyoke meant secularism to capture. So we would tend to use the word humanist for you know, non-religious approaches to life and meaning. We would tend to use the word atheist to describe a belief you know, that people had that was separate from religion. Um, and the word secularism in UK English uh, today is used primarily to talk about politics, to talk about the separation of religion, specifically from law and politics. Right. Um, and it, I know it is slightly different in English in North America, where the word still is used with some wider applications and broader meanings. Um, but it's that use specifically in relation to politics that I explore in the book. Uh, next, you focus on the development of secularism in Western societies in particular, starting with Aristotle, the Roman Empire, and the beginning of Christianity, on up through Western history to the United States of America. Mm, yeah, I think, I mean, so people often associate secularism almost solely with the West, uh, because they think, you know, well, it started in the Enlightenment, um, and, you know, the French Revolution, uh, and that's where it all came from, that's where it all began, right. um, and then spread across the world from there. And of course, there's, you know, there's something in that. It was uh, brought to a very high pitch uh, in modern Europe um, and the modern West, and particularly in the French Revolution. But the separation of gods and, and religion from practical politics is much older than just an Enlightenment phenomenon. Um, and really, it was it was Christianity and the coming of Christianity in in the West that pushed religion and politics together uh, in the most fundamental way. If you think about ancient Greek city-states, I mean, obviously they had gods uh, and the temples of the gods were important public buildings, but gods didn't 
you know, decide what the law should be. Right. No one, no one made an argument, you know, well, you know, women shouldn't have abortions and uh, there shouldn't be slavery or there should be slavery or whatever, because God said this. Um, and so that was a sort of secularism in pre-Christian Europe, but obviously it wasn't a fully worked out secularism. But it, it's certainly a practical separation of, uh, you know, religious life from political life. And Aristotle, who, uh, as you mentioned uh, a moment ago, wrote the first detailed analysis of politics uh, in Europe, at least, uh, talks about the life of the city, political life, as being uh, the same as the life of individual human beings. You know, it, it's to seek practical benefits in the here and now. There's no suggestion that it's to seek any sort of advantage in, 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 a, in another life to come. So Christianity obviously forces religion and politics together um, in the Western world. It then does quite a neat job of helping to separate them out again, um, because obviously there are elements of Christian theology that allow um, for the concept of rendering to God what's God and uh, God's and, and to Caesar what is Caesar's and so on and so forth, and allow some sort of practical separation. And particularly in Protestant theology later on, there's a separation of church and state. Um, so Christianity uh, plays its part as well. It's not just the Enlightenment, it's not just the ancient world, it's Christianity. And then, of course, we get, in the case of the United States, that uh, concept of religious freedom, that blending together of Christian theology and Enlightenment humanism in the, in the work of people like Jefferson in the Virginia law on, on, on religious freedom, um, and, of course, in, uh, in, the, in the basis of the uh, U.S. constitutional guarantees of religious freedom and of, of a secular state. And then, of course, we get the French Revolution, too. But these events are caused by long traditions of thought uh, that uh, eventually bear their fruit in these big events, these revolutions. But they're, you know, they're, they're long in the, in the development. Yes, your next chapter goes on to examine uh, secularism in non-Western, non-Christian oriented contexts, because as you mentioned, uh, as much as we may think of them as originating in the West, uh, they have other contexts as well. Uh, you suggest Turkey, India, and ultimately the UN as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that, so it is a very short introduction, so you have to be, I had to pick my countries <laughs> that yeah, I was going to focus on. and. In, in the chapter we've just uh, mentioned about Western societies, I, I focused on the United States and on France um, as being, you know, the two first really constitutionally secular states in the West uh, and also offering two very different kinds of secularism. So the United States has a much more uh, religious freedom oriented type of secularism. You know, the, the purpose of secularism is to protect religions from the state. In France, there's a much more anti-clerical sort of secularism. Its purpose is more to protect people from religion right uh, that's it's sort of uh, not 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 you know not technically but you know that's its spirit um then when we go on to look at the sort of secularism that exists outside of the west and the two countries that i choose as you as you have mentioned are turkey and india you get a very different sort of secularism again now just as in the west um secularisms elsewhere in the world have long histories they don't just originate in the modern uh period and in india in particular um, there's a long history um, of uh, official religious tolerance alongside often also, of course, a history of religious persecution. But there are, you know, sec quasi-secular settlements in the in the 3,000 years of Indian political history that predate the modern Indian state. So, again, these things have long roots, but they are, of course, also influenced by uh, European precedents, by the, by the time Turkey and India uh, having their... 
you know, their own revolutions, their new constitutions being drafted. It's the 20th century. Um, it's secular, secular forms of government and forms of so many other things are seen as the way forward, the modern thing to do, the democratic thing to do. Um, India, therefore, has secularism from the beginning. Uh, Indian secularism, though, and this is one of the reasons I chose it as an example, uh, is different again from American and from French secularism. And it's more, I think I call it in the book, uh, the secularism of diversity. You know, it starts from the starter point of Indian secularism is the assumption that we've got people of all sorts of different beliefs, you know, Muslims, Christians, Jews, uh, Sikhs, and, and so on, non-religious people, humanists, um, and also Hindus in all their diversity, because they're an extremely diverse uh, category of believers, um, even if they can be described as a single category. So from this, this starting point of diversity, how are we going to make a nation? How are we going to make a great nation, a new nation? Um, and secularism really seems to be the only plausible way of governing that offers all of those people a sense of equal citizenship um, and a possibility of, of equal treatment. Um, so Indian secularism is quite different from American or French, although it has resemblances. Turkey, uh, even more interesting, because uh, in, in Turkey, secularism is almost not about freedom at all, really. Uh, it's more from the beginning about state control of religion. Hmm. And although Ataturk in particular pays lip service to, you know, freedom of religion or belief, really what the uh, secular Turkish state is about is hmm. controlling and constraining uh, religious organizations. And of course, that's still the case today, though the state these days in Turkey tends to celebrate religious organizations and use its control of them to promote a religious agenda rather than to uh, restrain them as it did under the secular uh, under secular uh, governments. So yeah, there's, there's a, by the time we get to the end of this, of this chapter, the third chapter, we've looked at a lot of different societies um, and a lot of different types of secularism, uh, although all called by the same name. And as you say, I end the chapter by the observation that in the mid 20th century, through the United uh, Nations, uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, there was in effect uh, a secularism of international law. So Article 18 that gives the right of freedom of religion and belief, thought, conscience, religion uh, to everyone uh, in the world. Um, and many constitutions that were written in the 20th century by states that wanted to be compliant with those international principles uh, were secular uh, as a result. You also note that secular systems differ from country to country, as you just mentioned, um, yeah. yet the various arguments in their favor all share some common themes as they make the case that secularism is the best arrangement between religion and state in terms of engendering freedom, equality, peace and democracy in modern societies. Can you talk to us a little bit about those common points of argument? Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, as you say, the case for secularism is, is quite similar. Um, although different advocates of it at, in different times at different places have, have emphasized certain uh, arguments more than others. Um, basically, that the core secularist argument, the argument of campaigning secularists in particular, is that uh, secularism is the only uh, settlement uh, to guarantee freedom, fairness, peace uh, and democracy. And all of those arguments, a lot of those arguments come from sort of liberal humanist uh, philosophical tradition, um, but they're also supported by theology uh, from within Christianity and Hinduism and uh, Sikhism and, and Islam uh, as, as well. Um, they're not, you know, these arguments aren't the sole possession uh, of uh, you know, enlightenment-oriented liberals. The argument for freedom, 
this is probably the one that's most distinctive of the liberal humanist tradition. If you think about a philosopher like John Stuart Mill, who thinks that, you know, it's intrinsic to human flourishing, to human fulfillment, that the human being should be free, free to develop their capacities uh, in whichever direction is, is best uh, suited to them. Um, and the idea that the state uh, should tell you what to do or what to think or control your choices in the way that a non-secular state does, uh, you know, is incompatible with that idea of freedom. So that's, that's the general argument uh, for freedom. Uh, or the freedom argument for secularism. The argument for fairness is pretty straightforward. Um, it's uh, really the same as, as, as any argument that people might make for justice, whether based on compassion or on, uh, you know, more rigorous political grounds. So if we think about what sort of society we would like to live in, if you're a Jew, you're not going to want to live in a society where you can only enter public life if you're a Christian, or you can only get a university degree if you're a Muslim, or you can only um, be a member of the, the central party government you know, machinery if you're an atheist or whatever. Um, and, you know, what goes for one person you know, should, should go for another in a, in, a, in, a, in a fair and equal society. There's an assumption, of course, behind this that we people by and large want to live in a fair society where there's justice. But the, I think that's a pretty fair assumption. And the conclusion is obviously that a secular state, one where no one is disadvantaged or privileged because of their religion or belief, um, is the one that is fairest. The argument for peace, sometimes called the, the pragmatic argument, is really a, an argument from history as much as anything. It says, look, what happens when uh, one religion or a collection of religions dominate the political machinery? You know, uh, you have persecution, you have oppression, you have civil war, you have wars of religion, you have... Uh, a total breakdown often of, of society. We see that in the history of Asia. We see that in the, very much in the history um, of Europe. So the pragmatic argument is to say, well, look, to avoid a war of everyone against everyone, we need to have a state that will somehow raise itself above these religious questions and try and mediate diversity rather than you know, take a side. I mean, there are three main arguments. There's also an argument that uh, people uh, make about democracy to say that, look, if, if you're a... If you're a non-Christian in a Christian state, state with an established church, for example, you don't really have a sense of equal citizenship with, you know, citizens who are of the religion of the state. And that's a, that's a general point, I think, about democratic citizenship. Um, very important in the Indian context, increasingly important too in the European context where uh, there's greater social diversity. Okay, excellent. Um, and you mentioned that while the case for secularism tends to remain fairly consistent across contexts, the opposition to it covers a broader range. And you cover yeah. both religious opposition, such as from Christian as, and Islamic states, as well as militant atheist states, such as we see with Marxism and communism. Yeah, Marxist-Leninism in particular. That's right. Um, so I think that the theo theocratic arguments, arguments from you know, monotheistic religious believers that the state should reflect their particular uh, religious beliefs are really the, almost exactly the same as the arguments of Marxist-Leninists to you know, say that the, the state should be atheist and should actively promote atheism. Um, I think they're really two sides of the same coin and neither, they're both arguments against secularism. So secularism obviously is the, is the idea that religious and state institutions should be separate, but it's also the idea that everyone uh, should be treated equally on, you know, regardless of their religion or belief, and that people should have the maximum freedom of conscience 
and of religion and belief as possible you know, in a shared society. You can't have everything you want, of course, in a shared society. Your rights and freedoms have to be limited by other people's rights and freedoms for a start. Um, but a secular state wants to try and guarantee the most freedom you possibly can have. Now, obviously, in a, in a Christian state or an Islamic state um, or a Marxist-Leninist, you know, officially atheist state, freedom's not on the agenda. You, know, you have to conform and comply, um, and that is the point. Uh, you can't change your religion in an Islamic uh, state quite often. Uh, in Christian states in history, you might change your religion, but it came with severe penalties, uh, civil, uh, sometimes criminal. And of course, in uh, Marxist-Leninist states, uh, religious practice uh, was routinely uh, limited and religious belief, there were attempts to stamp out religious belief uh, itself, for example, in Cuba and Albania. So, and the Soviet Union is most extreme in its history. So those arguments against secularism are, as it were, the oldest um, and the most simple. Um, it's just a group of people, Christians or Muslims or communists, you know, Marxist, Leninists, saying we are right, everyone else is wrong, and it's we're so right, we're so convinced of our uh, rightness that we've got no qualms using the apparatus of the state uh, to perpetuate and enforce our correct beliefs. Um, so they, you know, they're pretty simple and it's, they're quite hard to argue against because, um, you know, uh, a lot of people, especially believers in monotheistic religions or, you know, essentialized sort of political philosophies like Marxism, a lot of those people are difficult to argue with right. um, because uh, in order to change their political views, you would have to change quite often their religious views. Um, and it's, it's quite difficult. Some of the other arguments uh, against secularism are, are a bit more reasonable. Right. Uh, by those, are you talking about um, the three you mentioned, romantic conservatism, the myth of neutrality, and the notion of a community of communities? Yes, that's right. I think they're, they're three of the, uh, that's the way I try to group other arguments against secularism into three sort of broad categories. I and mean, the idea of romantic conservatism is probably uh, the stretchiest of those categories, because I try to cover with that, within that type um, both the sort of Indian nationalism, the Hindutva ideology that motivates the Indian government today, this idea that, that India is uh, a Hindu community and should be a Hindu state, um, and the ideas of conservative philosophers like Edmund Burke, a great friend of the American Revolution, obviously, but a great enemy of the French Revolution, and one of the reasons why he was an enemy of the French Revolution, this uh, English philosopher Edmund Burke in the 18th century, was that he didn't see society as a as a, a collection of rational individuals, you know, held together by a social contract, um, you know, to guarantee freedom and fairness and, and, and peace and so on. He saw society as a, as a, as a sort of organic thing, uh, as an organic tradition. And the people who are alive today are really no more uh, important than the people who came before us and, and, and the people who will come after us, you know, and our, and our obligation uh, to the dead and to the future members of our tradition is to, you know, sustain that tradition. Hmm. So this sort of conservative argument um, is, is, is the one that's made against secularism. It just basically starts from a different premise about what society is and what a state is for uh, and what politics should be for. Uh, you get it a lot today in um, historically Christian states in Europe from conservative forces. That's, uh, you know, just a, a different view of what, of what society is. The argument from the, and I think it's relatively easy to deal with a conservative one because, you know, you make, make sort of arguments of 
the dignity and autonomy of living people today as against you know, respecting tradition and being ruled by the dead. Right. The myth of neutrality, the so-called myth of neutrality argument, is a bit more difficult. So this is an argument that comes very often from liberals, uh, from people in the West who've had uh, the benefits of secularism, as it were, and grown up within uh, secular uh, states and settlements. And they take aim at secularism's claim to be uh, an objective sort of, an objective form of government or objective form of constitution. These critics say, aha, secularism claims that it is uh, a neutral approach, that it, you know, will take a neutral stance uh, and hence include everyone uh, within it. Um, but secularism is in fact the product of biases, implicit biases as a result of its heritage. You know, secularism arose in Europe and um, it carries within it biases that are uh, there by virtue of its humanist and Judeo-Christian origins. And that makes it an inappropriate settlement for you know, diverse societies, especially for societies where people might adhere to religions other than Christianity or have views other than humanist ones. Um, those two sets of views, a sort of common sense humanism or a sort of Christianity or a mixture of the two are obviously the you know, majority opinions um, of most uh, states in the West, um, but there are increasingly uh, minorities from other cultures and traditions, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, and people who individually just don't have those beliefs, not as part of a particular tradition, but because of their own uh, life processes life journeys that have brought them to particular points. So say these liberal critics of secularism, actually, um, it's not neutral. Uh, you know, it's, it, and it, there's something rotten here. And to some extent, of course, um, it, they've got a, these critics of secularism have got a fair point. If you think about something like the cases in the 19th century in the United States, um, when Mormons challenged criminal laws against bigamy, and sought to rely on their First Amendment rights to do so. You know, they would say, look, I, I, the Constitution guarantees me free exercise of my religion. Um, my religion uh, and my wife's religion uh, says that this is what we should do. You know, polygamy is our religious duty, not just something we can do, but something that we must do. Um, therefore, who, you know, who is the state to enforce unshared Protestant religious norms about marriage on us? Right. You know, secularism is not being neutral, uh, mediating, you know, a society in which there are many different views of marriage and marriage. It's preventing us uh, from exercising our religion. And you get this in India today, where uh, secularist reformers of family law in India uh, want to make divorce a civil matter or prevent polygamy or whatever. Um, and Muslims in India and, and other states, too, um, say, well, this isn't secular. This is imposing Hindu or Christian norms on us. And, you know, that that's a fair point, actually. Yeah, uh, you get a version of that in the United States, too, I think, with the recent Hobby Lobby um, case. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that in the Yes, you're right. Of course, that's part of the same phenomenon. And in those circumstances, I think that secularists need, need to respond or they would be sensible to respond um, by saying... Yes, you're right. Uh, this is, it's not secularism, in fact, that is stopping polygamy. It's something else. And then mm. you have to make arguments on the human rights of women or uh, equality arguments in the case of 
the American situation, the rights of LGBT people or of women uh, to dignity or privacy or autonomy um, or non-discriminatory services, you know, of various sorts. So actually, that's true. You know, it's, it's so although the argument from the myth of neutrality people is apparently uh, persuasive or might have something in it, um, it's not really an argument against secularism. Mm, fair point. Um, it's, it's an argument against other sorts of things. And I, so I think they take a mistaken aim. And, and beyond that, I mean, I can't cover everything, obviously, it's covered in the book, but in, in just a few seconds now. But beyond that, um, I think the myth of neutrality critics of secularism are also, you know, they make a bit of a straw man because secularism doesn't claim to be perfect. You know? Right. It just claims, it just, secularists just claim it is the best possible uh, alternative uh, to. Uh, the various sorts of uh, theocratic or semi-religious governments that are in fact oppressive. Right. So the notion of a community of communities then. Yes. Yeah, that's another, yeah, so that's another uh, type of argument. I mean, many of the people who make the myth of neutrality criticism of secularism um, would like to replace it with this idea of a community of communities. Now, these are these sorts of criticisms of secularism, the sort of community criticisms. They're people who say, well, secularism relies on the idea that society is made up of individuals and families, basically. But individuals and families are not the only units of society. They're not even the most important units of society. The most you know, individuals and families exist in wider social networks and wider cultural networks and religious uh, networks that they exist in are extremely important. So what the state should be about is not trying to protect and recognize individuals and their rights, but it should be in fact about trying to protect and recognize these communities. So this sort of multicultural argument, this multicultural way of ordering a state, um, there are very few states in the world that take this approach completely, although uh, the Netherlands used to take this approach, have separate schools and hospitals and trade unions and, you know, newspapers for uh, Catholics, Lutherans, and uh, so on and so forth. And Belgium sort of used to take this approach. And they, both those states have a little sort of remnants of it now. And some of the states where the Dutch had empire, like, for example, Indonesia, I think, have, still have uh, sort of multi officially state multicultural sort of constitutions. Um, but even in states that don't have complete... Uh, multiculturalist approaches. Uh, there are many states that have it to some extent. So, for example, in England, um, there are increasing uh, separation of public education into religious uh, categories. So, you know, Muslim schools and Hindu schools and Jewish schools, uh, state schools, um, as well as Christian ones and so on and so forth. So, um, this argument, this criticism of secularism does have implications. It, it is gaining ground uh, in a lot of uh, parts of the world, especially ones where diversity is a more, more recent development. So in Chapter 6, you return to the problem of arriving at a precise definition of secularism as it applies in our contemporary context. And you look at a variety of uh, theorists here, uh, some of the interpretations articulated by them, and you name um, Jose Casanova, Charles Taylor, Tariq Modoud, Mm. Uh, Alfred Stepan and Rajiv Bhargava. My apologies if I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing some of those names incorrectly. I don't know if, if, uh, if we have the time or the inclination to go over all of them, but if you could just talk to some of that a little. 
Right, yeah, we probably don't have time. I mean, Elizabeth Shackman Hurd is another thinker on this that I, that I mentioned there. So, I mean, I said we said earlier on that um, the book is about a very specific use of the word secularism, namely the use of secularism in relation to politics. Um, but even within that single usage, that single definition, there are uh, an enormous range of different sort of sub-definitions or differences of emphasis that different people, different scholars in particular in the academy, um, this is really quite an academic thing, um, give it. Um, and in the, in the, in the concept, in this, in this chapter that we're talking about, I don't just talk about academic conceptions of secularism. I talk also about the secularism of campaigners, um, and of constitutions and, and so on and so forth, um, and of laws. The academic, I can't do justice to the, the whole academic field in just a few, in just Certainly. Even sure. a minute. <laughs> um, but I mean, broadly, um, the academic uh, areas of contention, are around how necessary each aspect of secularism is for something to be legitimately described as secular. So I said earlier that secularism roughly has three parts. It's the separation of religions and state institutions. It's the attempt to maximise freedom of conscience and religion for all people. And it's the equal treatment of people um, on grounds, you know, without discrimination on grounds of religion or belief. Now, what the, what the academic... Conceptions of secularism tend to divide around is how necessary and essential each of those three parts is for something to be secularism. So, for example, someone like Alfred Steppen thinks that you know you can guarantee, you can maximise even uh, freedom of religion and belief and equal treatment without having a separation of religion and state. And someone like uh, Rajiv Bhargava thinks that um, a separation of religion and state is absolutely essential. Um, but rather than just aiming for uh, rather than aiming for equal treatment of everyone, it's legitimate for the state to seek to pursue some social policy goals through its uh, activity that might lead to people being treated unequally. So, for example, he talks he, he draws attention to the way that Indian secularism is constructed so as to allow the Indian government to eliminate discrimination based on caste. Uh, even though that is technically, of course, a violation of the religious freedom uh, of all sorts of Hindu organisations and uh, especially temples and so on and so forth. Um, so where they differ, they tend to differ around the emphasis or necessity that they would give to each of the parts of secularism. Okay. That's a brief summary of a complicated. Uh, no, no, I'm sure it's. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's. It's. It could fill a whole series of podcasts, but uh, that's, yeah, that's a good. Yeah, in fact, summary. I wish I had more time for it in the book as well. I mean, the ah. the very short introduction series is limited, you know, to thirty five thousand words, and it's it, it, one of the the less friendly American reviews said that you know it was all all too quick and all too you know brief. Um, but unfortunately, that was a constraint of the of the of the length that was possible in the series. I think that. Um, the academic area, the, you know, this debate, the academic debates might have been an area where more attention could have been given. Mm, okay. Well, at least there's the information there for readers where they can go yeah. further, you know, based on yeah. the little bit that you give them. So also here, look at how different countries incorporate secularism into their governmental practice. You mentioned um, uh, various constitutions. Some adopt secular practices despite having non-secular constitutions, for example, while others are careful to codify their state's stance on religion into their constitution. Yeah, I mean, this is so this is another really area of the, the broader question of how secularism is, is really conceived, because 
if we move on from the academic debate and, uh, and say, you know, okay, so we can't find any consensus um, there about what secularism actually is, then maybe we can find some consensus in practice, you know, in, in the black letter law of, of the states that have adopted it. But in fact, that's very difficult to do because um, although they, the constitutions of states, secular states, do bear some resemblances to each other, um, this is largely because of the big sort of copy and paste that went on in the mid 20th century, where you know, things like the Universal Declaration's guarantee of freedom of religion or belief was just sort of lifted out of those international instruments and inserted into hmm. uh, state constitutions. So it doesn't really tell you very much about, uh, you know, how those states conceive of uh, secularism in practice. Like you say, there's also then a legitimate uh, debate going on from that that says, well, some of the most secular states in practice are those that uh, don't just not have secular constitutions, they actually have religious ones, you know. Um, there are states, of course, uh, in Europe especially, uh, where the constitution is uh, of a religious state. So, for example, Norway. Norway is a Christian state. Um, and it is obviously much more a place of freedom of religion or belief than Turkey, which is a secular state. Hmm. And some people would argue it's, it's more of a place of freedom of religion than, than many other uh, nominally secular states as well, constitution secular states. So there are also, once you get down to it, there are all sorts of, you know, it's a slippery uh, endeavour trying to pin down a single conception of secularism. All right. Well, in the book's final chapter, you turn to the research of Jonathan Fox, who coordinates the religion and state project at Bar Ilan University in Israel to discuss how secularism is, in fact, in a fairly precarious position worldwide and that there are very few places in the world where we find the kind of state neutrality and impartiality towards religion that we would hope. Yeah, I mean, this is a step on, as it were, from what we were talking uh, about just then. Um, so, you know, if you can't find uh, a consensus in, in, in the laws uh, about what secularism might be, you start to think, well, does it really exist? You know, does it, does it really exist as a single uh, category? Is there, any, is there any state in the world that is secular? Uh, in this fully formed way. Um, and Jonathan Fox's research, which, uh, or his work rather, which goes uh, beyond just the idea of law and seeks to categorize every state in the world um, on the basis of other factors as well, like social policy and the, the real life situation on the ground, his work finds maybe four or five countries which we could uh, describe as secular, though they're still not completely. The United States is one of them, uh, for example. And finds, obviously, that most of the states in the world, the other 150-odd, whatever it is, um, are not secular, nowhere near it. And also, in the years that he's been conducting this analysis, um, he finds that if there's a, to the extent that there's a tendency in the world um, in state reform, the move is away from secularism and towards a dilution of, of, of secular settlements. A couple of countries, uh, states, have become more secular in the last few years. Uh, Nepal, Iraq, Sweden, but these are really very unusual uh, in the global context. So, yeah, the questions that are raised there are really existential ones for secularism that secularists have to answer. You know, is there yet a state in the world where secularism really is uh, thoroughly enshrined? The answer seems to be no, not completely. Um, 
is it you know the case that even that states are moving towards that sort of sectorism and the answer seems to be no <laughs> no they don't seem to be mm. um so there is a problem globally in, in secularism and at the same time i mean what this last chapter is also about um is about the other challenges you know the hard questions that face uh secularism and it is faced with all sorts of challenges you know in europe um the uh political debates around uh growing minorities especially of muslims in western europe but of other minorities too um in uh, secular states like france big debates about the place of religious conscience religious dress um in in non-secular states like uh the uk uh big debates um about freedom of expression blasphemy criticism of religions those debates are also in of course in in, in the rest of europe um in india uh in turkey in the united states uh, a real resurgence of you know, political religion uh and its use the use of religion in politics so huge challenges and conflicts for for secularism in the early 21st century is we're a long way from uh the heyday of secularism in the mid 20th century where at least people states at least states paid lip service to the principles of secularism now more and more we're getting uh states that don't even pay lip service to the principles that actually brings me to uh my last question about the book and that has to do with your personal opinion andrew are you optimistic about the role of secularism in our societies and our governments in the future or do you kind of uh are you discouraged that's a good question with that question you're inviting me to go beyond the sort of uh attempted objectivity that the <laughs> the very short introduction is if i may uh, yeah i mean so i i actually i do say right at the end of the book that i i do think that in some form secularism is the only possible the only plausible type of constitution governing situation that we can uh implement i think that you know human beings what they are being what we are um if we're free uh, we make choices and the moment that our choices differ from someone else's which they do almost immediately that we have the freedom to make them um society becomes diverse you know human society is irredeemably diverse and if we want to nonetheless in spite of that diversity have a fair society and i think most people do want fairness um in this world at least in their immediate uh national contexts most people not all people but most people um if we do want fairness in the context of that diversity i can only see that some form of secularism uh is the type of government that we have to go for and of course it's not perfect nothing's perfect um and of course we might not fully realize it uh, ever as 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 the research just been saying shows that it hasn't been realized yet but movement towards it um in a dynamic way uh taking account of uh problems and trying to overcome them on, on the way and acknowledging that it's not a simple route map that we can just follow i think that sort of secularism that more dynamic and accommodating sort of secularism perhaps is the only plausible uh settlement that we can have to to live with our diversity in a sort of peace now am i optimistic that that's what will happen <laughs> well on a good day i'm feeling optimistic about it and okay. on a, on a, you know on a, on a gloomy day not so much i think there are, there are, there are the few things we can say about the countries that you mentioned i think the united states uh secularism 
will endure. I think the United States Constitution is reasonably robust. Of course, the First Amendment might not be subject to quite as many uh, news stories as the Second. Um, but right. I think I think the First Amendment, nonetheless, is is pretty safe. Um, and I think you know, although it's a case of the pendulum swinging one way and then the other, often in the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court judgments about religious freedom, you know, I think it's the, the concept of freedom of religion belief is pretty secure. In Turkey, well, you could see you could see a lot of problems in the short term. I think if a Turkish constitution were drafted today by today's Turkish government, it obviously wouldn't be a secular constitution that mm-hmm. they would be drafted. Um, the Speaker of the Turkish Parliament, you know, um, said recently that it would it would be an Islamic one. Um, he swiftly issued a sort of retraction of that, but he did say it. And so that's a problem. But I think in the long term, uh, it's, it's possible that Turkey will, you know, that will restore uh, its secular character. And I think if you look at someone like India, which uh, is going through a great resurgence of political religion, Hindu nationalism now, which is really damaging uh, the rights of anyone who isn't Hindu, and many people who are Hindus as well are, are damaged by it too, by the way. I think, again short-term power reasons were pessimistic. But in the long term, I think that, you know, those who believe in a secular settlement, whether they use that word or not, will rally around these setbacks. And I think the general story of the last three or four hundred years is that social change, and particularly an emphasis on the rights of all people, does lead naturally to a sort of secularism. I think that is eventually where all states in the free world will will end up. Excellent. Okay. Well, Andrew, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for squeezing us into your busy schedule. But before I enjoyed we, it. Oh, good, good. Before we go, though, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Well, I'm doing a lot of uh, uh, speaking around this book at the moment. Um, but uh, after that, I hope to, for the next book, I hope to be uh, working on some account of the persecution of non-religious people in today's world. So we hear, and it's connected in a way to secularism, we hear quite often now about the persecution of Christians uh, in various countries around the world, and it it often is happening. Um, But there's also been a huge spike um, in discrimination against and the active persecution of, right up to the murder and judicial murder of various humanist activists, non-religious people uh, around the world. And I'm hoping to do a book that will draw attention to that. And of course, being president of the International Humanists and being chief executive humanist UK are both practically full-time endeavours. So there's always plenty to be getting on with there as well. Wow, that sounds fantastic. So I'll thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it as well. And I hope that you will come back with your next book. Of course, definitely. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Andrew Copson about his book, Secularism, Politics, Religion, and Freedom. You can find out more about Andrew's work with Humanists UK and the International Humanist and Ethical Union on their respective websites, as well as on andrewcopson.net. We'll link them in the show notes and on the New Books and Secularism blog post. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and follow the New Books Network on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. You can also find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's C-A-R-R-I-E. L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye. 
until our next conversation about new books and secularism. <laughs>